Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. We love children, but today's content, I just want to give you that opportunity. Uh, Some of you, it won't be a big deal. For others, it could be. Um, But today, I want to talk to you about Jesus versus Santa. It's not really much of a competition, but sometimes the culture tries to make it into a little bit of a competition. And I, I wanted to really just continue the dialogue. Last week we started talking about the craziness of Christmas and, and we focused in a little bit about the reason for the season and Jesus and some of the common things that kind of come up at this time of year. Today we wanted to continue this conversation by talking about Jesus and I want to focus in a little bit on the deity of Christ as we begin our message today. And if you in your Bible can go to Mark chapter 2, uh, they'll put it up on the screen, verse 5 in just a second, you know. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the deity of Christ, because I want you to understand something. Jesus was a human, but he was also God when he was here. And I'm hoping that as we talk today, you're going to understand that if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, if he wasn't God, then we're wasting our time here today. If you don't believe that Jesus was God while he was here on earth, in fact, I'll even go so far as to say, if you don't believe that he was born through a virgin, why are you here in church? Why waste our time? And in Mark chapter 2, I'll start in verse 5, it says, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to a paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Think about that. You know, we have our prayer line and people come up for healing. And how many of us at the front, when we're praying for people, your sins are forgiven? Jesus actually had the power on earth to forgive sins because he was God. And he took that right as God and he activated it and he forgave sins. And they got upset with him. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. Notice it doesn't say Jesus heard their thoughts, heard them discussing it, saw them discussing it. It says Jesus knew what they were thinking. You ever know what people are thinking? Okay, usually we think we know. (laughs) That's assumption. I'm going to say Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit was operating the gift of discernment and the Spirit of God told him this is what they're thinking. So we asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? And then he makes this amazing truth claim and says, but I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And guess what he did? He stood up, he picked up his mat, and he walked. Okay? Jesus was God, 100% God, deity of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever, and you rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil, and therefore, O God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else. 
And see, he's talking to the son about the throne that God has given him. Jesus is co-equal with God, the Father. And there's a lot of confusion in our culture today about the personhood of Jesus. In fact, most of the cults deny the deity of Christ. That's how we determine if it's a true Christian faith or if it's a cult. Because when they attack the deity of Christ that Jesus was God, we know it's in the cult status or the false religion status. Because if Jesus wasn't God, then there would be no Christianity. We're wasting our time here today. And then I'll have some more after that, but let's just start with Titus 2, <laughs> 13. While we look forward to hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed, he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. This is really a good precursor for where I'm going to go with, because I do want to talk to you for a few moments about the virgin birth and the importance of it so that we understand this. I, I, I do this often at this time of year because, you know, we have the nativity and we talk about uh, Christianity and we talk about the birth of Christ and we celebrate that in this season. But I think it's important that we as Christians understand that fundamentally in our faith, if, if there was no virgin birth, you're going to have a little bit of an issue. But this verse refers to him as our Lord and our Savior. You only refer to deity as your Lord and Savior. Or you should only refer to deity as your Lord and Savior. Do you refer to humans as your Lord and Savior? I hope not. We don't want to worship people. And in 1 John 5, and we know the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding so that we can know the true God and now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the only true God and he is eternal life. And that eternal life that he's given us is super important that we understand that because you can only obtain eternal life through Jesus Christ the work he did at the cross. That's the only way to get eternal life is through Jesus Christ. We doing okay? So Jesus was God while he was here on earth. He's still God today and he has a throne and he's going to judge people. Even you and me. In fact, the Bible even says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So even people that don't think they're going to get judged by him because they don't believe in him, they're going to change their opinion one day. And that's going to be a messy conversation for them. Now, I want to talk, like I said, about the virgin birth. Because, see, it started right in Genesis 3, around verse 15. I will cause hostility between you and the woman. This is God talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And God prophesied right at the beginning that the seed of woman was going to come forth in in, in and I want you to understand between the woman offspring and the offspring of woman, right? And I don't know how many of you know your biology. You're instilling me with a lot of confidence. I'm going to give you a really basic biology lesson. When we look at the reproductive system of humans, the man contributes something called a sperm, the woman contributes something called an egg. When the two come together, God breathes a new person into existence and you have a unique life. We doing okay? basic biology. <laughs> From the beginning, that's how God created it and set it up, and that's how people are created. Okay, sperm, egg come together, and you have a human. When Jesus came onto the scene a little bit later, 
because of some of these prophecies. If you look at Matthew 1.23, look, the virgin will conceive a child, meaning the woman who's not been with a man in the sexual sense. You know, the biblical, he knew his wife. They're talking about the sexual relationship. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Luke 1.27, to a virgin named Mary, she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And then Isaiah, and I'm going to get to the prophecies next, but this is one of them. I'm going to give you two of them, one from Isaiah 7.14 and one from Isaiah 9, verse 6. Okay. There was some prophecies that came forth that talked about this hundreds and thousands of years ahead of time. Not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands. But okay. All right, then the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Isaiah 7, 14. You guys know when Isaiah was written, right? Isaiah was written here. And then hundreds of years later, an angel came and had a conversation with the Virgin Mary. And God moved miraculously, and she conceived a son with no help from any man. Think about that. That's miraculous. Now, don't try that today. (laughs) Jesus came once. He doesn't need to come again. There's not going to be any other virgin births. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child is born to us and a son is given and the government will rest upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is the child, the son, that Mary was going to bring forth. So we see from Isaiah there's these prophecies that talk about the birth of, of Christ. Now, I want you to understand, if you were to go over to the Middle East around the time that Christ was born, Jerusalem was here, and then if you go a little bit this way, you'd find this little town called Bethlehem. Has anyone ever been there? Some of you been there? You've been there, right? It's just a little, it's a hop, skip, and a jump down the road to Bethlehem, okay? And there was this guy named um, Boaz who married Ruth, and you can read the book of Ruth about this, and he was from that region. And then he, around that time on his property, they built this Migdaliber, I think is how you say it. Eder, sorry. Migdal Eder. And it was basically the tower of the flock. What I want you to understand is, at that time, because they had the temple where? Jerusalem. But in Bethlehem, they had the Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock. And what they did at the tower of the flock was they raised the sacrificial lambs. So the sheep would be in the fields with the priestly shepherds who took care of the priestly sheep that were designed and bred for sacrifice. Okay? And then when they gave birth, they would bring them into this tower and the lambs would give, the ewes would give birth to the lambs that were going to eventually be sacrificed in the temple. And then they would wrap them in swaddling clothes. So the sacrificial lambs that went to the temple were born in the tower of the flock. How are we doing? Okay. And the shepherds in their fields by night that it talks about in the Bible, these are the very ones that the angels appeared to and said, hey, I bring you 
tidings of great joy. You know the story. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. These very shepherds said, hey, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. <laughs> okay. They knew exactly what manger to go to. They knew exactly where to go. They went to the tower of the flock. And that's where they found him. How did they know that? Because God, isn't it just like God to send the sacrifice for all of mankind's sin and he's born in the very place that the sacrificial lambs of the temple are being born? I don't know if he's here this morning. Years ago, I remember talking to my buddy Graham and we were talking about the resurrection, which is what we celebrate at Easter. <laughs> okay, the other one. <laughs> but he was talking, we were talking about this Shroud of Turin. And he made this comment to me that made me laugh. He said, isn't it just like God to take a picture of what happened way back in the day? <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> but isn't it just like God to arrange the sacrifice for all of mankind's sin to be born in the very place that the lambs that were going to be sacrificed in the temple would be sacrificed? And see, those shepherds, they were educated in the Word of God. They were the shepherds over the priestly flocks, kind of like David was. David, he knew what was going on. He knew the Word of God. In fact, he wrote a lot of the book of Psalms, which has a lot of prophecy about the Christ child that was going to come forth. And then in Jeremiah 31, verse 15 and 16, there's this strange prophecy that comes forth that says, this is what the Lord says, a cry is heard in Ramah, a deep anguish and bitter weeping. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her children are gone. Then he says, this is what the Lord says, don't weep any longer, I'll reward you, and your children will come back to you from the distant land. Listen, what a lot of people don't realize is there was Abraham, Isaac, and so Jacob, interesting guy. He goes over to his uncle Laban's, and he falls in love with his daughter Rachel. So he works for his uncle Laban for seven years to marry Rachel. How many of you men worked seven years so that you could marry your wife? Hold on, hold on. <laughs> then he gets into the wedding tent after the ceremony. He takes off the veil and goes, you're not Rachel. So he gets married to her older sister first. Talk about Trixies. So he works another seven years so that he can have Rachel. And then his first wife starts having all these babies. And Rachel can't have any. So as was the custom in those days, Rachel gave her, him her maid. And she started having babies in her stead. And then Leah, not to be outdone, gave him her maid so that she could have more children than her sister. And then eventually God opened Rachel's womb. And you see she has Joseph and Benjamin, but she dies in childbirth. So he worked for 14 years for her. She couldn't have children for a long time. She eventually has two, but dies after the second one's born. They buried her in Bethlehem. Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. 
Okay, so Bethlehem is often associated with Rachel. Fast forward, Joseph and Mary had gone over to Bethlehem where they birthed Jesus. And then when the king, what was his name? Herod, found out that maybe a savior was born, maybe another king was going to be born. How many know kings don't like competition? Some things never change. You ever read the news about North Korea? Whoever's the leader de jour, if he feels threatened by a cousin or an uncle or anyone for that matter, what do they do? They execute him. No competition. I will have no competition. And Herod thought, there can't be another king, I'm the king. So he went and murdered or killed, they call it the massacre of the innocent. All the children in that region under the age of two. And see, there was an angelic encounter with Mary when she conceived. There was an angelic encounter with Joseph because he was about to have her stoned. We talked about this at a previous message. Okay, the private stoning ceremony in the back. But then there was another angelic encounter where the angel came down to Joseph and Mary and said, hey, take this one and go to Egypt. Get out of here because it's not going to be safe for you to stay here. I find it so interesting that when the Savior of the world came, they tried to take out the children. You know, if you back up in your old covenant, when Moses was born, what were they doing at that time? They were taking out the men. And I find it interesting that today as Savior, people that lead people to the Savior are coming onto the planet, there's a massive attack against the innocence of childhood. Not my message today. So the Messianic prophecies. Now, I've talked about this, but you need to know, Peter Stoner was a mathematician, and he took just eight of the Messianic prophecies. There's over 300 of them. In fact, I've got a list of 365 of them, although some of them are a little bit they're on the border. They could be, they might not be. There's at least 300, though. Okay. He took eight of them, and he did some math, and he calculated the odds of one human being being born in Bethlehem, dying in Jerusalem under Roman crucifixion, not a bone in his body was broken, some of these messianic. And he calculated the odds are one in 10 with 17 zeros added, or about 100 quadrillion. That's the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of them, let alone 300 of them. But I want to go through some of these, as we call them, messianic prophecies. How are we doing? I'm not going to read all 300 of them to you, but I want to highlight some. In Genesis 3, we talk about the seed of the woman of the virgin birth. This is fulfilled in Luke 1.35 or Matthew 1.18-20. I'm, I'm not going to read all these. I'm just going to go through the highlights. In Genesis 12, as Abraham's seed, he will bless all the nations. How many know that every nation of the earth can be blessed because Jesus came to earth? and died for our sins, so now we can receive forgiveness of sins, and guess what we gain because of that? Eternal life. Genesis 14, 18, a priest after Melchizedek. Genesis 22, 8, the Lamb of God was promised. Genesis 49, 10, the time of his coming. They kind of predicted around when he was going to be born. Exodus 12, Christ is our Passover. He was the sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. Exodus 12, not a bone of the lamb to be broken. Numbers 21, you see the symbolism where Christ was lifted up on a pole in the wilderness, just like he was lifted up on the cross. 
There's a whole lot of them in here. I'm going to skip down. Psalm 16. He was going to rise from the dead. The resurrection was predicted in Psalm 17. The words that he was going to speak were in Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalms 22. He died of a ruptured heart or a broken heart. Psalms 22. They pierced his hands and feet. Psalms 27, 12. He was accused by false witnesses. There's prophecies about all the nations shall be blessed by him, to speak forth the wisdom of God with authority, and it seems that Jesus spoke with a lot of authority if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Isaiah 25 predicted the resurrection. Isaiah 35 predicted that he was going to have a ministry of miracles. Isaiah 40 talks about he was preceded by a forerunner. How many of you know who the forerunner was? John. Remember him? Repent. And John taught the baptism in water. Jesus came and did the baptism of fire. Okay, Isaiah 53, really the whole chapter. His people would not believe in him. He would grow up in a poor family. He had the appearance of an ordinary man. He was despised. He was rejected. Great sorrow and grief. Men hide from being associated with him. He would have a healing ministry. He would bear the sins of the world. He was thought to be cursed by God. He bears the penalty for mankind's transgressions. Isaiah 53, 5. Woohoo. He bore the penalty for our transgressions. His sacrifice would provide peace between man and God. His back would be whipped. He would be the sin bearer for all mankind. God's will that he bear the sin for all mankind. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was silent before his accusers. He was a sacrificial lamb. This is all Isaiah 53. Confined and persecuted, he would be judged, killed, dies for the sins of the world, buried in a rich man's grave, innocent and done no violence, no deceit in his mouth. God's will that he die for mankind. He was an offering for sin. He was resurrected and he lives forever. Man, I'm telling you, when Isaiah wrote Isaiah chapter 53, he was having a good day. He was tuned into what the Spirit was saying. Because he spoke hundreds of years before it happened with great accuracy. All by himself, he talked about what was going to happen when Jesus came. Even though when Isaiah spoke, the people of Israel, they didn't listen to anything he had to say. <laughs> Him and Jeremiah, man, they had a rough, rough job, rough day. Think about it. You're a prophet. You walk into the church... You come up here to speak, everyone says, yeah, yeah, whatever. Can you get someone else? We want to listen to someone else. We don't like what you have to say. I'm not kidding you. I mean, Jeremiah, Isaiah, those guys were, they were, they were a little bit, I don't want to say crazy, but they were, they were wild. I mean, one prophet comes up and looks at him, and I think it was Jeremiah, he goes, hey, listen, God's going to bless these people and good things are going to happen. And Jeremiah's like, yeah, yeah, no, they're going to go into captivity because they disobeyed me. <laughs> and the guy goes, Jeremiah's lying to you. Don't listen. And Jeremiah says, you know what? God will prove who's right. You'll be dead in less than a year. And he died. Those guys, hundreds of years before it happened, were talking with great accuracy about what was going to come. And I'm talking, there is over 300 prophecies in your old covenant that talk about the coming of the Messiah. I highlighted a few more. Jeremiah 31 talked about the massacre of the infants, that he was going to be born of a virgin, that the Messiah would be the new covenant. Zechariah 9, there was, he was greeted with rejoicing in Jerusalem, beheld his king, the Messiah would be just, the Messiah would bring salvation, the Messiah would be humble, presented to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, like, really? Think about that. Which prophet sits down and then over 500 years later, he goes, yep, in 500 years, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to ride in Jerusalem on a donkey. Sure enough, guess what happened? Not only that, I think it was a donkey that had never been ridden. 
Anyone ever tried to, uh, um, what do they call it with a horse when you try to make it so that you can break a horse? Zechariah goes on and talks about he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Read Zechariah 11, 12. He was rejected. This 30 pieces of silver were thrown in the house of the Lord, that his body would be pierced, that the Messiah would be God and man, that he would be rejected, that he would die for mankind, a violent death. Malachi, even 400 years before, talked about the forerunner would come with the spirit of Elijah, that the forerunner would turn many to righteousness. This was John the Baptist preaching his message of repentance. How many are getting this? Are you understanding? God set this up. He pointed, really, to the coming of Christ, and he used his prophets to declare ahead of time what was going to happen. So when it came, I'm amazed that the people who studied these things didn't figure it out. The shepherds, who were the lowlifes of the culture, if something was stolen and there was a shepherd standing there and someone else, they would automatically accuse the shepherd. You think I'm kidding. The shepherds were kind of the ones that were overlooked. They were the ones that were cast aside. They were the ones that had the lower status. Why do you think that when Jesse called all his sons, David, the one taking care of the sheep, was the one that they didn't even think, they didn't even consider him? No oil, no oil, no oil, no oil, no oil. Um, Jesse, is there anyone else? Well, there's that shepherd kid out in the field. And I find it funny that the Messiah came forth from the lineage of David. God brought forth the Messiah through David. All right, so there's all these Messianic prophecies. We've got the virgin birth. We've got the Messianic prophecies. Now I want to, man, I got way too many notes here. Okay. We're going to go from Jesus, who we've determined, I think, through the scriptures is God. He is the Messiah, and he came to die for the sins of all mankind. And I want to go to the modern-day Santa that our culture tends to celebrate. Now, I think the mythical Santa that we talk about today and we see in the pictures, um, he might have had his origins in a real person, but they kind of took it beyond reality into, I want to say, fantasy. And what happens is, like the superheroes today, they've kind of created this superhero to kind of replace Jesus at our Christmas celebrations. And you say, what do you mean replace Jesus? Well, Nicholas Mira, he was the Bishop of Mira. Uh, in the Catholic Church, they've made him a saint now. Um, he seems to be the man that eventually developed into the legend um, of Santa Claus. And there's lots of debate about his life, okay? Like, the guy lived 270 to 340 A.D.-ish, maybe 350, depending on who you read and who you talk to. And the truth is, studies of ancient documents, they fight back and forth about this stuff, so we have no idea which stuff is authentic and which stuff isn't. But it's not necessarily we're talking about the Word of God here, we're talking about a man's life, not a deity's life. See... There's very little debate on the authenticity of our scriptures. There is debate, but it's, it's not very well founded. We have original copies of the book of Isaiah dated to before the time of Christ. You know those prophecies I just gave you from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 that are, and then Isaiah 53? We have original copies of the book of Isaiah dated to before the time of Christ. There's not a lot of debate about our scriptures, but there is some debate about the life of Nicholas. But either way, it seems he was born wealthy, and he distributed his wealth to the poor after his parents died. Well, that's a good biblical principle. How many of you know we're supposed to take care of the, the ones that are less fortunate? 
within our means. Okay. And then his uncle was the Bishop of Myrna, and he saw the call of God on his life, so he um, got him into the priesthood. Uh, notable things in his life. There was uh, three young ladies. The father didn't have enough money for their dowry, so Nicholas saved them from being sold into a life of prostitution by throwing these little gold bags of coins through the window so that the father would have enough money to pay the dowry. That's one thing that most people seem to associate with him. Uh, there was another one where he saved some sailors from being shipwrecked because he prayed and the seas were calm. And then there was another one where he saved some guys from execution. And then it goes into some craziness. No, like some craziness. Like there was this butcher during the famine that butchered these boys and was going to sell them as ham. And then Nicholas came and reassembled the bodies and raised them up from the dead, making the sign of the cross. Now... I know, that's a little bit out there for me. But this became so wildly popular between the time of his death in 350 that you'll see stained glass windows in some of the churches that have this story recorded. I do believe in the resurrection of the dead, and I've seen dead people come back to life. I don't know that I've seen someone that was butchered and pickled come back to life, but... Overall, it seems that Nicholas was a good man who attempted to live a Christian life to the best of his ability. Now, I want to get to in the culture and... and understand. Um, there's this push to kind of translate and make the emphasis on Santa more than the emphasis on Christ. And I just want to warn the church that this is dangerous. Okay. Like even like Christmas is really Christ's mass. <laughs> That's where God, it's like it's the celebration of Christ. Okay. So there's some things that I think that we can do in the culture, and I know what it's going to lead to, because what happens is anytime you try to force the issue, well, it's Christmas, shouldn't we have a nativity? Well, Christ's mass has to do with Christ. Why are we going to take Christ out of Christmas? Well, let's just call it a holiday celebration then. Isn't that what they do? Here's some of the similarities in the Bible. People make these lists. I thought this one was fascinating. Jesus Christ, according to the Bible. In Revelation 1, his hair is white like wool. Santa has white hair like wool. Jesus has a beard. Santa has a beard. Jesus comes in red apparel. Santa comes in red apparel. The hour of Jesus coming, according to Luke 12 and Mark 13, is a mystery. Guess when Santa comes? It's a mystery. Guess where Jesus comes from? He comes from the north where he lives. Ezekiel 1, 4 and Psalms 48 talks about from the north. Guess where Santa comes from? Jesus was a carpenter. What does Santa do? He's a toy carpenter. Jesus comes as a thief in the night. Santa kind of, he even comes into your house like a thief. <laughs> I mean, if I didn't know the story on Christmas Eve and some guy came out, he might meet a bat. <laughs> Jesus is omnipotent and all-powerful. Santa's omnipotent. I mean, think about it. He can deliver toys to the entire planet in one night. God knows everything. Jesus knows everything. Santa knows if you've been good or bad. <laughs> Think about that. Jesus is ageless and eternal. I mean, Santa Claus, he's been around for how many thousand years now? Doesn't look like he's aged a day. <laughs> Jesus lives in men. Santa lives in the hearts of children. Jesus is the giver of gifts. Santa's the giver of gifts. John 14, 6, Jesus is truth. Santa, I'm going to go with 
fable. He doesn't exist. Sits on the throne. Jesus sits on the throne. Santa has a throne. We are told to go to the throne of grace. Children are told to go ask Santa for anything that they want. Jesus commands children to obey their parents. Guess what Santa tells children to do? He tells them to obey their parents too. Jesus wants the little children to come to him. Santa wants the little children to come to him. Jesus is the judge. He's been given a throne of judgment to judge the living and the dead, it says. Guess what? Santa judges you too, whether you've been... Do you know Jesus was the Christ child? I was looking at this. Chris Kringle actually comes from like the archaic German, which means like um, Christ and then kind child or the Christ child. It's just like a, it's an archaic, I want to say, I don't want to use transliteration, but it's, it's, it's the same. They're trying to communicate the same. Jesus is worthy of prayers and worship. How many people worship St. Nick? I mean, think about it. They even offer the guy milk and cookies. People won't pay their tithes, but they'll give Santa milk and cookies. Who are we sacrificing what to? <laughs> Jesus is the Lord of hosts. Santa's the Lord of the elves. <laughs> Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Santa's the symbol of world peace. Are we getting this? Uh, while St. Nicholas seemed to be a good man, I think they've taken a little bit far. And there's this substitution going on in our culture where they're trying to make him someone that he's really not. And there's a lot of deception involved in that. And one of the things that I think we need to understand, especially as parents, I'm not here to throw stones at anyone, I want you to understand, though, if I lie to my children about Santa Claus and deceive them into believing this is real but it's not, and then I lie to my children about the tooth fairy, and then I lie to my children about the Easter bunny, how are they going to make the connection that Jesus is in another one of those mythical figures? You can do what you want. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, sometimes um, we don't think things through. And we have to pay attention to these things because we communicate things. So here's the question that you have to ask. In your house, who's getting the glory? At Christmas time. In 1 Corinthians 10 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, this picks up with last week, do it for what? The glory of God. We live for the glory of God. We were made to give glory to our Creator. We were made for this. You and I were made to give glory to God. Matthew 5 16, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. See, we do good works, not that we can get accolades. We do good works, not that we get praised. We, get good, we do good works because we want Jesus to be glorified. Amen. And see, people, they'll tell me all the time, you're such a good man. I'm like, listen, if I look like him, thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to look like him, but I'm not real good in and of myself. I get my goodness from God. And as I try to emulate him, as I try to be like him, hopefully goodness will come forth. 
In Revelation 19, after this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord, salvation and glory and power belong to who? Our God. I'm going to share from our experience. Can I do that? I'm not trying to put my experience on you. You can do whatever you like. Okay? I'm just going to say this is kind of how we do it, and I'm not saying you need to do what we do. Did everyone hear me say that? I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm saying think about it and maybe do something in this direction. <laughs> okay, because for us, we want to make sure that God gets the glory as we celebrate Christmas. So we tell our children, you know, hey, and I hope they know this. No, we tell them this. <laughs> Jesus is the light of the world. Okay, he came to light the hearts of mankind. So when we put up lights, the lights represent that Jesus came into the darkness of our world. Okay, that's what, we, that's what we like to celebrate. That's what we like to celebrate, Jesus is the light. The tree that we set up, I see one over there. Really, Jesus was born to die. We celebrate that at Easter time, the death and resurrection. But he was born to die. He came with a purpose. He came with a mission from day one. He even was born in the place where the sacrificial lambs were born. It just took him a little bit longer to kind of get there, 33 and a half years. Gifts, I, I, I'm actually going to take the gifts and we're going to move it to next week when we talk about presents or presents. Okay, so as we continue the craziness of Christmas, next week when you come in, we're going to talk about the presents or we're going to talk about the presence of God. That's going to be where we go next week. So I'll explain that a little bit further. And then we do some very um, simple things like we read the scriptural account of the birth of Christ every Christmas morning after breakfast together. Because we want to make sure that the emphasis, and it's always been mom and dad gave you this, or Nana and Papa gave you this, or Grandma or Situ, someone gave you this. There was no imaginary person that snuck in our house and left some gifts in the middle of the night. And in our house, we have 22 peacocks and zero Santas. That's really unrelated to anything, just because my wife has an affinity for those things. <laughs> but we do have a nativity scene that helps remind us of the account of his birth up to about two years of age. Because really, in one picture, the nativity tries to capture a story that took about two years to develop. Like, do I believe that the wise men came on the night that he was born and brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh? I don't think so. I think that happened a little bit later. We say two years because that's the age that Herod chose to take out the babies that were two years and under. Okay, and I want to go to Luke chapter 2 in verse 10. Starting in verse 10, it says, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said, I will bring you good news that will be, bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. And suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those whom God has pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let us, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And there's a lot contained in this verse, but I want you to know that Jesus came to bring great joy to all people. 
Hey, why don't you stand up with me? You know, one of the things that Jesus came to do was to restore men and women into a relationship with the Creator. Because we read Genesis 3, where there was enmity between the seed of woman and the serpent, and it talks about how the seed of woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, he's going to bruise his heel. But see, the law of sin and death was released in the earth right before that. And because of the law of sin and death in the earth, mankind was separated from God in his presence. And you, in your sinfulness, were separated from the Creator, which meant you couldn't be in relationship with Jesus and you didn't have eternal life. But when Jesus came through a virgin, proving that he was God, living a sinless life, proving that he was God, put on a tree, crucified, went into the ground, came out of the ground three days later, proving that he was God, <laughs> then ascended into heaven. You see, he was sacrificed for your sin and for mine, and he was literally born into a covenant with mankind so that we could find freedom from the law of sin and death. And we do this by repentance. We repent of our sin. We say, God, I have broken your law. I've transgressed what you've called me to do. I haven't been living as you want me to. So I'm going to turn around. And we start walking towards Jesus. And we start leaving our life of sinfulness behind. And we start taking on the nature and the character of Christ. Repentance. That is where God comes in. He takes us out of the kingdom of darkness. He puts us into the kingdom of light. He takes your heart that is closed to the things of God. And he makes it alive. And you get a new heart. The Bible in John chapter, I can't remember if it's three or four, goodness. Maybe I need coffee next service. Um, um, talks about you must be born again. It uses the language born again for. So here's what happens, okay? We have to be born again. We have to have this encounter with God where we repent of our sin and turn our life over to him. In that moment, you become born again. You become saved from what? From your sins. That's where you gain eternal life. That's where you have a relationship with Christ. And you can start working out your salvation, as the Bible terms it, day by day. This is where it starts. And then God says, I want you to make a clean break from your past life, and I want you to identify with me as a Christian. I want to live the Christian life. And we do this by being baptized in water. And when you get baptized in water... We believe here we immerse people into the water and baptizo to be drawn out out of, so you get drawn out of the world system and you get put into the kingdom of God. And baptism is really a picture of what happened to you as an individual when you got saved, because God took you out, of, he drew you out of darkness, he put you into light. So baptism is a picture of this. It's an outward expression, an outward act of what happened in your heart when you gave your life to Christ. And in there, it demonstrates the repentance and the burial of your past life. It demonstrates the resurrection to the newness of life. And really, it's the power of God to help you start walking out your salvation day by day. And maybe you're not there yet, but that's okay. Ask God to give you the faith and the strength. In Jesus' name.